While many of you may believe that it is the single woman who is out of step and rebellious and lost in today's society, it's really the single man that statistically has been shown not to fit in. One writer states this, Men commit over 90% of the major crimes of violence, 100% of the rapes, 95% of the burglaries, They comprise 94% of our drunken drivers, 70% of the suicides, 91% of the offenders against family and children. More specifically, the chief perpetrators are single men. As any insurance actuary will tell you, single men are also less responsible about their bills, their driving, and other personal conduct. Today and together with the disintegration of the family, single men constitute our leading social problem. He goes on to say this. It is the single male that is often a threat to society. His aggressive tendencies are largely unbridled and potentially destructive. By contrast, a woman is naturally more motivated to achieve long-term stability. Her maternal inclinations influence her in her desire for a home and a steady source of income. She wants security for her children. And except for the true celibate, it is really only until the single man is married to a woman, dedicating himself to care for her, protect her, support her, that he becomes the mainstay of social order. Now, though our society, in a very real way, praises youth and exalts singleness, it only accepts the married man. Which leaves the college male, and all of us here present, with a very uncomfortable in-between stage. And that's why, again, we've been examining not only the role of women, but the role of man, as found in Titus chapter 2. And I'd like you to turn there one last time. Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 covering a passage of Scripture that deals with the married man and the married woman, the young married man and the young married woman. And so therefore, viewing this with the view of marriage and headed toward marriage, which is going to involve at least 95% of you, so therefore it's something that we have to gear ourselves toward and get ready for. Last time we got together, we talked about the quality of being mentally sensible. And then we talked about being visually examples of good deeds. And those are two goals that God would require from us men, that we live that pattern out in our lives, that that is a goal that we are demonstrating in our very lifestyle. And today I'd like to take a look at the last three, starting in verse 7. We are to be, first of all, this morning, theologically pure in doctrine, theologically pure in doctrine. Now, when Paul writes the word pure, he literally means to be uncorrupt and free from taint. He says that the goal of men is to have a doctrine that will not decay nor decompose. Our teaching, which, by the way, follows our example, is to be consistent, biblical and sound. Now, if you look at the context here, you'll recognize the fact that Paul is primarily addressing Titus, the pastor teacher. But we also know that there's some definite application here for all of us single men and married men present here. Since our teaching, 
Our instruction, our rules, our leading must be free from decomposition and decay. And something that we need to take note of. Now, how does one become pure in doctrine? Let me give you five simple applications, if I can. Number one, the one who is pure in doctrine is a true interpreter of the Word of God. A true interpreter of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, a verse that we all know. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. I like the way Dick Mayhew says it, cutting it straight. Someone who interprets the Bible properly. Now let me ask you then a question. Even though you're at a Christian college, this question is still relevant to you. When you read the word of God or you discuss the issues that are found in the scripture, Do you take time to study and think through the contextual, cultural, historical, grammatical, and even the cross-reference considerations? Do you take time to rightly divide the word of truth? Because that is an indication of whether you are pure in doctrine. For you gals who are looking to Find the right kind of man, the man who would be a biblical man, the man who is pure in doctrine. This is the guy who, when asked a tough question, either by you or by someone else, about the Bible, will find the answer no matter what. Because he is interested in what the Bible has to say, because that is his focus. That is how he leads. He's the type of guy that when confronted with an issue like that, he's almost like a bulldog. He won't let go of it until he finds the answer. That's what it means to be theologically pure in doctrine. One who seeks the truth and will not let anything get in his way in order to find the truth. Are you really concerned about what the Bible really says? Or are you content to be a third person Christian, everyone else chunking out the stuff and you just accepting it to be true, but no interest on your own to study for yourself to find out if it is true? Are you really a seeker of truth or are you content with what you think the truth is? Do you know what it says or do you think you know what it says? There is a place for dogmatism. And that dogmatism comes when we study the word correctly, when we interpret it correctly, then we know what the truth is. Are you theologically pure in doctrine? Number two, one who is impure in doctrine lives a godly lifestyle. They are not ones who live contrary to sound teachings, such as 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 lists several sins that indicate ungodliness by saying immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The word sound there being the same as it's used in Titus 2, pure in doctrine. The one who is pure in doctrine will not live contrary to the truth as a pattern of their lives, but will be as Jesus described in Luke 11, 28. Blessed are those who hear the word and observe it. Literally, and keep it. It's not just hearing, but keeping or obeying the word. You see, the issue here is what do you do with your ears, men? I mean, 
When Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, I often wondered what that meant. I mean, what do you do with ears other than hear? You can collect wax. You can have an ant colony. Uh, You can do all kinds of things. Have little insects get trapped inside. You can do all kinds of things, but hear and then heed and obey. And the question is, do you obey? Do you live the kind of lifestyle that emulates the teaching of the Scripture? Not perfectly, but are you one who wants desperately to live out the truth of the Word? Because that's what it means to be pure in doctrine. Not just what you know, but what you do. Gals, this is the man who is so honest, righteous, holy, and a man of integrity that not for any other reason except that he fears God. He knows the truth of the Word of God and he responds to it. He won't participate in certain behavior. He won't participate in going to certain places or doing certain things simply because he fears God. And he fears the consequences of that decision. Are you living a godly lifestyle? Are you pure in doctrine? Here's another practical way of expressing pure in doctrine. The one who is pure has an incredible hunger for the truth. An incredible hunger for the truth. Just like Job who said, I have treasured the words of his mouth, that's God, more than my necessary food. Incredible thing to say, especially for young men. The biblical young man meditates on, thinks about, examines and discusses the word of God, even to the neglect of a meal. Even to the neglect of his daily needs. Gals, this is the guy who might even go so far as to not talk to you about social things or what's happening at school or relationships because he's so consumed in what he's hearing and learning from the Word of God. It's so much a part of him that he cannot help but talk about it. I often used to marvel when I go out to lunch as a staff at Grace Church with your president, Dr. MacArthur, with some of the other pastors on our staff, And about Wednesday, the guy was so consumed with what he was going to talk about on on Sunday morning that he just started leaking it all over the table. And we'd be listening to all this stuff and we'd go, well, I guess we're going to hear this again on Sunday. But it was so much a part of the discovery process. He was so excited about it, not just simply because he's a pastor, but because he hungers for the Word of God. That's to be a part of every male, of every man. That is an indication of a godly man. He thinks he's consumed with the word because it's his very nature. It's his very soul. It's his food. How do you rate as one who is pure in doctrine? A fourth way that you can be pure in doctrine is the man who makes his decisions based upon the biblical text. Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we talked about this last time in the area of sensibility. But the question is, is the Bible a light to your path? Does it show you what to do? Does it tell you how to spend your time, your money, who to date, how to best glorify Jesus Christ, when to go to bed, and what things you won't look at? Does it decide your views on current issues such as economics, loans, homosexuality, abortion, etc., etc.? Does it... Do you speak opinion or do you speak scripture? The man who is theologically pure in doctrine knows the word as it addresses issues and not what he thinks those issues address. Women, this is the man who will determine your friendship, who will determine where your date, where you and what you talk about and all your romance 
and the progress of your relationship by the word of God. And those of you familiar with a man who does this knows that the world can't even come close to that kind of romance. I know a young man, a friend of mine, who would be termed by some of you as being straight or some of you who are a little bit more blunt, square. Yet he's a man of integrity, an incredible man of integrity. In fact, when I first met him, I shook his hand and he just turned red in the face of embarrassment because he was just that kind of shy man and yet an incredible man of character, even though he couldn't communicate very well with the people around him. Since then, he's become a great teacher. He met a girl on a backpack and uh, he was attracted to this girl. He saw that this girl had an incredible qualities of life, that she was a woman who feared God, and he was impressed with her. He had heard about her before he even met her. Her reputation went before them. And so slowly, and I really mean slowly but surely, he carried on a relationship with her. They didn't even call themselves girlfriend and boyfriends. They didn't even call themselves friends. They didn't even know what they were. He didn't tell her. She didn't tell him. They just continued to spend time. Slowly but surely, they began to grow closer and closer. But the girl who was meeting with my wife did not know that John, this particular guy, cared for her. And I was meeting with John, and he did not know that this girl definitely and strongly cared for him. They were in love with each other, but no one was telling anything. They never talked about marriage. They never talked about anything, but they grew more and more and more in love. And he never violated the scripture, not once. At the most, he held her hand. They spent a lot of time. They talked about things that were most important toward the close of their whatever they called their relationship. They uh, used to study a little bit together. They'd spend time. She'd do her homework. He'd do his homework. And they'd do that kind of thing. But they had an incredible relationship. And everybody looked at them in our group as a model. Then they went on the same backpack a year later. They climbed a mountain that is characteristic of this particular area where they were at. And he had brought along a book that he had made. A year souvenir a years of memories, a whole year of memories in this particular book. Pictures, ticket stubs of everything that they had done, he saved. He never told her he saved it, he just did. And they went up on this mountain and he opened up this incredibly elaborate book that he made himself, all decorated with a big heart on the cover. And they went through this page by page and they were enjoying this incredible time together of what God had done in their lives. And then before he turned to the last page, he closed the book and he talked with her a little bit and they prayed and she opened up the last page and there was her engagement ring. And he asked her to marry her and they kissed for the very first time. You know what? I don't care what soap opera you watch. It can't even come close to that kind of romance. And I just want you to know that a man who biblically fears the the Lord and is theologically pure in doctrine can be just as romantic, if not more so, than any guy in the flesh. Are you theologically pure in doctrine? Do you make your decisions on the basis of the Word of God? A fifth way that you can find out whether you're pure in doctrine is to spend time with Jesus Christ. Like a best friend, like one who can't wait to communicate with his creator, the man pure in doctrine spends regular time with Jesus Christ. And ladies, this is the guy who may not 
spend time with you simply because he needs to spend time with his creator because his priorities are in line. So few men are truly theologically pure in doctrine. My question to you is, are you? You know, I fear for you as a student body in in a loving sort of way because you get so much good truth here. I mean, you guys are at the Chuki Lala Christian campus. And Westmont and Biola have nothing on you guys, and I'm familiar with both of those campuses. I mean, you have teachers who are laying out incredible truth. You're getting it day in and day out. My question to you, is it making any difference? I have seen incredible changes in the student body, and so therefore I know that it's made a difference. My question, is it now becoming so much a part of your lifestyle that you will be theologically pure in doctrine? Or is it only this campus that is making you theologically pure in doctrine? And when you leave for the summer, will you then chuck that and go back to your old way of thinking? That's a good question. I hope and pray that as you answer that question, it'll become a conviction on your part to be that kind of biblical man and woman. I fear for you in such a way that I would even risk and have prayed that for some of you, not very few of you, but for some of you, that God would cut you or hurt you in such a way that you would again need the word of God like you did when you were desperate for it. Are you theologically pure in doctrine? The next incredible goal that God has for the single young man and the married man is number four, socially, the man is to be dignified. Socially, the man is to be dignified. Now, this is really misunderstood. It doesn't mean arrogance or aloofness. It doesn't mean being stale or dry or doesn't mean the English top hat affair or like the Queen of England with her I'm not amused type look as she prunes up her face. That is not what dignity means. Originally, in chapter 2 of Titus, in verse 7, it meant to step back from something, and later it came to mean an ethical outlook resulting in decency and order. And what it means now in verse 7 is that quality of life which inspires reverence and awe. Think about that, guys. If you are to be dignified, people are to respect you. Do they respect you? It is that which produces respect and the desire to be followed. And if you take a look at a brief survey of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 2, it tells us that this quality is required of an elder, a deacon, a deaconess, and it is the essential quality of both the older and younger man. This is the quality that commands respect. It earns the right to be heard. It knows what it is saying and exercises simplicity and sincerity in every area of life. Practically... Being grave or dignified is the process of living life with the constant awareness that you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You are representing Jesus Christ every moment of your life. It is recognizing the truth that we have the incredible responsibility of being God's representatives on this fallen planet. In all of life, with every person, in every place, at all times... We are to be Christ's dignitaries. Christ's dignitaries, his representatives. We are related to the king and therefore act as if we are related to the king of kings and the master and creator of this planet. 
Therefore, we do not stoop to petty arguments. We do not bear grudges. We are not unapproachable and we are not touchy or defensive. We are not too loud. We are not too rough. We are not the clown. And we are not and do not behave in the area of extremes. It doesn't mean that we're all vanilla. It doesn't mean that we don't have varieties of personalities and that some have a greater humor than others. But it means that we don't fall into the area where we would misrepresent Jesus Christ as his ambassador or detract from people seeing him in us. We strive to faithfully represent our Savior. Now, how do you know if you're socially dignified? Let me give you two tests. Okay, they're real simple. The first one is you're watching TV and the referee or the umpire has just made an incredibly bad call against your team that cost them the championship. What is your response? Do you scream at the referees and hit the set and complain or do you drop to your knees in an attitude of prayer? That might be overstating it, but nevertheless, it's an indication of your dignity. Test number two, you're driving home on the freeway after a long, long hot day. Dr. Howe has just given his final exam. There is no air conditioner, and some driver who got his license at Kmart cuts you off, and you miss your off-ramp. What's your response? Blessing or blasting? Well, that's enough. Dignity, an area that has basically been lost. When people look at the pastorate, when people look at Christians now, because of some of the abuses of people who call themselves Christians today, the pastorate has lost its dignity in the eyes of at least our society, as well as the normal Christian is viewed as being someone who's committed intellectual suicide and really needs a crutch because of the weakness of their character. But dignity is something that really represents who Jesus Christ is. Do you display that as a man? The final goal of the young man, the fifth one, is that we are to be verbally sound in speech. You can see that in your text, verbally sound in speech. Not only is he to be mentally sensible, visually an example of good deeds, theologically pure in doctrine and socially dignified, but he needs to pursue the goal of being verbally sound in speech. Why? Because that's what God wants. Now, the Bible has a great deal to say about our speech and our words. Look over at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, if you have your Bibles, and see what Paul tells us about our words. He says this, those of you turning there, very significant statement. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no, that means no, unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. What he simply says here is that we are not only to not allow any foul rank or worthless word proceed from our mouths, but we are also to only allow those words that would build up and benefit the hearer. How's that for a criteria? 
Only those words that build up and benefit the hearer are to proceed from our mouths. Turn over two books to Colossians chapter 4, if you would. Verse 6. And you'll see again what Paul says about our speech. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech always... Those are words that marriage counselors tell us to never use. Always and never. The Bible uses it here. Let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned as it were with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Paul exhorts the Colossians and us that when he says that our conversation must be pleasant, always watching that our words are said at the opportune time and always appropriate to each individual. Listen to what Proverbs says about our speech. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Good words can make an anxious heart glad. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. Pleasant words are sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstance. You see, as men, we must realize the power, the power of our speech. I'll never forget, even as I recall it with a great deal of emotion, when I was young, a time when my father took me out into the backyard as he sensed I was struggling with my own identity as the youngest member of our family. And he took me outside and he shared with me with incredible sincerity that he thought that I was as smart or smarter and talented or more talented than my incredibly talented, super genius, high achieving older brother. And I'll never forget hearing those words hit me like somebody hitting me with a sledgehammer right in the middle of my chest as I sensed those life giving, powerful words hit me. And I really believe that any success that I might have had in my studies from years to follow was linked to that one single statement that my dad believed in me. Our words are powerful. They're incredibly powerful. You can shape a character with words. Yet we also must realize that our words have the power of death as well. Take, for example, the little girl who was trying to find her parents after performing her part in the sixth grade play. Her daddy, talking to another man, after spotting him, she cried, Daddy, Daddy, and ran up to grab his hand. And he was, she was still jumping up and down in the expectancy of his response when he said to her incredibly sharply, Barbie, don't interrupt me. Can't you see that I'm talking to Mr. Matherson? I'll be through in a minute. Immediately, the light in her eyes was extinguished. And if you think about it, the message she received was not only blunt, but under the circumstances, quite cruel. What she heard was, your performance, little girl, was not as important to me as my interest in what my adult friend is saying right now at this moment. And as a result, part of that child died in those brief moments. You know... One of the greatest lies that I ever told while I was growing up was sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And you know, that's a lie. That's a lie. Because every name that was ever said to me and about me, I can still remember. 
and they did hurt. Our words are powerful. They can start wars, end friendships, split families, destroy churches, qualify leaders, heal wounds, cure ailments, and begin marriages. That's why Paul says in Titus 2, verse 8, that we are to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Our speech is to be healthy and whole. The word sound in the Greek word uh, is the Greek word hygieus, hygieus, from which we get the English word hygiene. And in other words, our speech is to be safe and clean. And no matter if we speak a sermon, a lesson, a message, a lecture, some instruction, correction, or just simple conversation with a friend or girlfriend or some other context, our words are to be healthy and pure. As a man, we need to avoid being the familiar intellectual who always has something to say, but we need to be, like James says, slow to speak and quick to hear. You know, young men, we've got to realize that and remind ourselves that death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, that little red muscle in your mouth is either going to be a scalpel that brings healing or it's going to bring us it's going to be a sword that brings destruction. You're either when it comes to your comments and your perceptions of people, a hummingbird or a vulture. When a vulture flies over a desert, it will find a carcass because that's what it's looking for. When a hummingbird flies over a desert, it will find a flower because that's what it's looking for. And my response to you, when you converse with people, what are you looking for? Evil? Looking for the next sarcastic statement? Looking for the next joke? Looking for the next one-liner? Or are you looking to bring healing? Looking to bring sound words and healthy words to a conversation. Nothing, men, nothing will tear down a woman faster than unsound speech. The most destructive thing in marriage counseling is when the couple gets in there and it becomes war words. Who can top this conversation? And they just banter back and forth with greater and higher and more hurtful insults. And those scars that are left remain for years and take patterns of lifestyle over years in order to bring healing. And yet nothing can bring and build more than sound words. Once a a friend of mine, while at an airport, he was waiting for his flight and he was sitting at a cafeteria and a severely burned girl, very severely burned girl, walked up to the counter with her mother and sat at the other end of the counter that he was at in this little hotel counter type place in the middle of the airport. She was burned so badly that people could not help but stare as they walked by and yet at the same time they quickly moved their heads away because they didn't want to make eye contact with her so that she would know that they were staring. As my friend watched her, she continued to slump down and hide from the glaring looks because of the severity of her burns. And my friend found it increasingly uncomfortable just to remain at the same counter with her because of all the intensity of the looks that were being shot right at her. Then, as it became increasingly uncomfortable, an older man, another man, sat at the counter between my friend and this burned girl 
And almost immediately, this older man began to stare directly at this burned girl. The stare became so intense that the younger girl began to slump down in her chair and her mother even tried to physically shield her from the stare. It became so intense. My friend, growing angry moment by moment, almost began to speak. And just as he was ready to say something like, knock it off and stop staring at her, the older man spoke. And with incredible sincerity, he said, excuse me, miss, for staring. But I just had to tell you that you have the most beautiful blue eyes that I have ever seen. And my friend said that through those sincere words of praise, he watched the transformation of a physically marred girl into a beautiful blue-eyed woman. Not only did she, in the moments to follow, begin to talk and discuss with this older man, she giggled and laughed and sat erect in her chair. Just from one statement. One statement. What happened simply was Proverbs 12.18, wise words bring healing. Men, are you mentally sensible? Are you visually an example of good deeds? Theologically pure in doctrine? Socially dignified and verbally sound in speech? If I could challenge you, some of you this morning, I would ask you to assign a day of the middle of the week, Monday through Friday, each one of these qualities and begin to live these out in your life because this is what God expects you men to be. Bethlehem Steel once paid a consultant $25,000 for one single solitary idea. $25,000 for one idea. What was the idea? Do first things first. List them in their order of priority and then do them. That's very sound advice. God's goals for you men are very clear. We don't need to grasp after what the world is offering us, we have the clear Word of God to tell us what exactly we need to do. And all we need to do is to pursue first things first, which is to strive after God's character qualities for men. Will you? Men? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time. And for a brief look at what your word has to say about what us men are to be, I would pray, Father, that you would move in our hearts to be that individual. Move us away from trying to be so cool, trying to be so aloof, that we do not zealously seek after being what you want us to be and pursue. Free us from some of the trappings of our society that would distract us from being true men of God. Motivate in our hearts by the power of your spirit for us to be your men. Men who would stand in the gap. Men who would speak your word. Men who would lead. Men who would represent Jesus Christ. Give us what is so lacking in our society. 
as a result of our time, men who truly fear God. Father, we ask this because we know it will please you and you will be glorified as a result. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.